If you have your scriptures with you, open them to Ephesians chapter 4. And we're going to read the same passage we had from last week. If you don't have your Bible with you, there's a a printout in your bulletin that you can uh, look at and follow along. I'll start in verse 1 and read down to verse 16. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when He ascended on high, He led a host of captives and He gave gifts to men. In saying He ascended, what does it mean but that He also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that He might fill all things. And He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the Word of the Lord. I'm sure that you all have heard about the Scottish Presbyterian who was stranded on a desert island after a shipwreck. And he was there for many, many years before he was finally rescued. And as they were sailing away from the island, the ship captain turned to him and said, I thought you were stranded alone on this uh, island. I see that there's three huts uh, on the beach. And the, uh, the Scottish Presbyterian said, Well, one is my house and the other is my church. And the captain said, well, what about the third one? And he said, that's my other church and I'll never set foot in it again. (laughs) It's a very old uh, joke. I'm sure you've heard it uh, before. Uh, Unity is tough. It's hard to stay unified. It's hard to stay unified in the church. It's hard in your family, uh, with your marriages sometimes, with your children, at your job. Uh, Unity is tough. Listen to what John Calvin 
the great reformer had to say about unity. And uh, remember, it's coming from John Calvin. Listen. Among Christians, there ought to be so great a dislike of schism, that's disunity, so great a dislike of schism that they may always avoid it so fast as lies in their power. There ought to prevail among them such a reverence for the ministry of the Word and sacraments that wherever they perceive these to be, there they must consider the church to exist. Nor need it be of any hindrance that some points of doctrine are not quite so pure, seeing that there is scarcely any church which has not retained some remnants of former ignorance. Isn't it interesting that someone as, as strict about doctrine as John Calvin would say that we have got to look beyond simply that doctrine to where the Word of God and the sacraments, Word being faithfully preached and the sacraments being rightfully administered, and there, that's where the church exists. And that's where we can find uh, unity. Paul insists in these first few verses that love and unity must go together. And he urges us as people of God to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. And last week we talked about humility, described what that is, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, as Gary prayed this morning, being spacious. doesn't mean that you put up with sin, and it doesn't mean that you tolerate a heresy or false doctrine. It does mean that you walk with humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance. Those don't exclude the other. In fact, they make it possible for redemption and reclamation to take place. And the basis for it, Paul gives very clearly as a oneness, a sevenfold oneness that we all share across denominations, across our different doctrinal beliefs, we share these things in common. One body. We're all part of one body. One spirit. We all share in one Holy Spirit. One hope. The hope of our salvation and reconciliation and eventually our resurrection. One Lord. Our Lord Jesus. One faith. The common Christian faith. One baptism. One God and Father. Over, of, and through, and in all. Again, he lays out this amazing uh, description of a, a four-dimensional structure, probably thinking about the temple and the people of God, you and I, being part of that great temple. So we're to strive for love and unity, and we're to find the basis of it in those sevenfold description that Paul gives. And this morning, uh, we're going to talk about how. How do you get there? How do you find it? You see, Paul is going to start, as we've been talking about, he's building a grammar for us, a grammar for the gospel. And now he's going to start to describe, here's how you actually do what I've been describing that you are as a people. And we're going to look at three things real quickly this morning. First, the gift of 
of grace and the grace of gifts. The gift of grace and the grace of gifts. Secondly, how do you get these gifts? And thirdly, how do you know that you're truly receiving them? That you're actually, they're actually in your life. So the gift of grace and the grace of gifts, how you get them, and how do you know that you're experiencing them, that you've received them? Uh, so let's look at the first one. What are these uh, gifts of grace and the grace of gifts? Well, first of all, notice that, that Paul says grace is a gift. Grace is not something that you can earn. He said grace is given to each of us according to Christ's gift. Uh, this, this is uh, hugely important. You can define grace as assistance or help. We do use that in our, 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 uh, um, our vocabulary, that grace is something that merely comes alongside and makes it possible for you to do certain things. And there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, the Bible itself uses grace in that way. But how do you know what a word really means, class? The context. Remember theology class for Monday night? Context is everything. So as you read and you see a word like grace, you don't just immediately go off and figure out what it means. You look at the context... And the context of this particular grace and many, many others is that it is not simply God coming along and helping us. It's God coming and doing something so that we can then do something. He makes it possible. Grace is uniquely an act of God. Uniquely something that God does. And it's a gift of Christ. In other words, He comes and He gives this grace to people, people like you and I, people who, by its very definition, don't deserve it. Grace is, by definition, something you do not deserve. And so Christ is coming along and Paul's saying, look, this is a grace to you. Grace is a gift. And secondly, these, this gift of grace, com- or grace communicates to us a gift. Look at this, uh, this second part. It's a gift given to each one according to Christ's gift. What are these gifts? I, you know, I have been in churches. I've actually gone to churches where when you want to become a member, uh, they give you a thing called a gifts assessment. Have any of you been in churches that do that? A gift, in other words, they give you a test to find out what your gifts are. I don't know, maybe so that they decide whether or not they want you to be a member of their church. But we all want to know, what are our gifts? What are my gifts? And we obsess and obsess over gifts. So let me tell you a little bit about gifts very quickly. Uh, There's about five lists, depending on who, uh, what commentary you read. There's about five lists in the Bible of gifts. Over 20... 20 plus different gifts that are mentioned, that are gifts of grace. So very clearly, uh, these lists of gifts are telling us this is not all there is. These are just some of the many gifts that God gives to His people. These are some. 
Now, the church over the centuries has been very obsessed with specific gifts, what we call spectacular gifts, gifts of miracles, gifts of healing, gift of tongues, and interpretation of those tongues, gifts of prophecy. And so the spectacular gifts, the gifts that are uh, getting a lot of attention, uh, seem to be the ones that the church gets obsessed about. But there are also other gifts that are more mundane, more everyday, like the gift of mercy and the gift of administration, the gift of helps. Uh, there are lists of gifts that are not so spectacular. I had a friend of mine uh, who was a minister, Presbyterian minister in Florida, and he was, a, he was kind of a rough guy around the edges, and he said, yeah, God has not given me the gift of mercy. I have no mercy. And uh, we used to tell him, well, you know, you really should become a Christian and get saved. Since you're, after all, you are a minister, and <laughs> you, know, you should become a Christian. And then God will give you the gift of, of mercy. Uh, to, to understand gifts, gifts are, let me explain it this way, and hopefully this will make some sense and take some of the pressure off of you to do uh, a gift assessment constantly. You know, am I gifted? Am I gifted? Am I gifted? Well, I don't know. But there are different kinds of gifts. There are natural gifts that you are born with that just come naturally to us. It's the way you're wired. It's just your DNA. And some of you can, uh, can do amazing things. Just your natural giftedness. And then there are special gifts that God gives. And He gives those according to His own will and His own administration. And what I want to say to you very briefly, we can talk about this more after uh, during our question and answer time. Uh, I think we most of the time, I think we know what our gifts are. I think we know what our natural gifts are. We struggle to know what these special gifts are. But understand this, that special gifts, when God gifts you with something special, He does it uh, as you need it. And so you might find your, you might say, you know, I don't have the gift of evangelism. I just don't have that particular gift. But you may have a time in your life when you're talking to somebody and, and things move in that direction and before too long you're sharing your faith and you're talking to them about the Christian, the Christian uh, religion and they're responding to you. That's a special gift. You may find another time when you're, when you're in a, a debate with somebody, a skeptic who does not believe. And you think, boy, I'm just not gifted at this apologetic stuff. I don't know how to answer these questions. And all of a sudden, you, you start asking them questions and you start responding in certain ways. And they respond to you. A special gift. There may be times in your life when you've gone to the hospital and prayed for somebody and that person actually gets well and it could be a miracle it could be a combination of the doctors which is also a miracle I mean all of these things so it's gift of healing so there are many many gifts both natural and special and rather than obsessing be who you are God has equipped you be natural do those gifts and in the other areas leave it up to him when you need them, He will give them. And finally, Paul is saying that our unity is enhanced and strengthened by
by the various gifts. You see, nobody has it all. We like to think, boy, if I could just be a well-rounded person, I would have all of these gifts. I could sing, I could dance, I could play the banjo. I could do it all, right? We have all of these ideas if we could just cluster everything together. But nobody has everything. It's impossible. And so God has brought us together. And some of us are aggravating. Some of you are very aggravating. Some of us are less aggravating. No, you know, we, He puts us together with different people, with sometimes aggravating people, sometimes people we do not mesh with. And because we don't mesh with them doesn't mean that we're to separate from them. In fact, the opposite may be true. Could you imagine looking around you and saying, you know, these people that I don't particularly like, I really may need them. I may need them because I have rough edges that they are specifically good at knocking off. I mean, I don't know about you all, but did you marry somebody that's just identical to you? If you did, then one of you is, yeah, exactly, one of you is superfluous. No, we marry people that are really different. We go, oh man, I just married the wrong person. That's probably not true. There's probably something wrong in the way we look at people. Yes? The wrong, we're looking at things wrong. So our unity is enhanced, Paul is saying, by this amazing diversity, even when it's uh, difficult. So, uh, John Calvin, again, I spent a lot of time this week with John Calvin, and uh, it's always fun to do that. Listen to what he says. On no one has God bestowed all things. Each has received a certain measure. Being thus dependent on each other, they find it necessary, listen to this, to throw their individual gifts into the common stock, into the common pot. In other words, we come together and we all throw our gifts in. And then as a unit, as a body, as a church, God will take us as a group and, and use us corporately in the bigger picture of the city, of the southwest, of the world even. He will uniquely do this. He puts us into the common stock and thus to render mutual aid. In other words, being alone is bad. Being together is good. Even when we don't necessarily agree with everything or we don't get along particularly well. He's saying use those times as opportunities to refine your, your being, who you are. Let it work on you instead of resisting it. And if we would do this, God would actually change. He has given us those as gifts. Grace is a gift. Gifts are grace. And they go together. Look at the second one here. How do you get these? This is found in verse 8 and verse 11 and 12. How do you get these gifts. First of all, look at the gift giver. Look at verse 8. Therefore, it says, when He ascended on high, He led host captives. He, speaking of Christ, He gave gifts to men. Now what's going on here is that Paul, like a good preacher, a good exegete, 
he's, he's quoting Psalm 68. He's reaching back into the Old Testament and he picks out a part of the Old Testament and he rolls it up into his sermon here and he starts talking about Psalm 68. We don't have time to read Psalm 68, but I'm just going to tell you the, the basic thrust of this section that Paul is quoting from. The psalmist in Psalm 68 calls out and cries out to God to send rescue. Rescue me, I'm being oppressed by my enemies. And God does. In fact, He comes Himself as the great warrior, King, and He delivers His servant who has called for victory. And there's a victory. And then as they as they process back into the city, they're bringing the spoils of their conquest and all of the captives that they have taken hostage or captive from the battle, they're bringing them along in this procession of celebration of the victory. The enemy kings scatter and God victoriously comes to Mount Zion and ascends His throne and sits in His throne with all the spoil, with His army, and with His, with his captives. And then Paul does something amazing. He takes that whole picture and he applies it to Christ. He tells you Jesus Christ is your King. He's your King. And He is the One who has Uh, produced this amazing victory. And in that victory, He has divided the spoil. He has given gifts to you and I. Gifts to use in His service. So first, look at the gift giver. How do you get them? You look to Christ. You begin to focus instead of, as I said, you know, obsessing about gifts, taking assessments, trying to find out what am I gifted, what am I gifted. You look to Him and the gifts will become apparent. They will flow out of you in a natural, holistic way. Secondly, you look to the gift giver. Secondly, you look to the gift itself. Embrace the gift that God has given. Look at this uh, verse 11. This is, uh, we're just going to talk about one aspect of this. He gave, here's the gift He's giving. He gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Now, let me, let me just say this. It's like preaching to the choir, but since you're here, I'll just preach to the choir. Maybe you'll have a chance to talk to someone else. The church, what Paul is saying is that the gift that God has given, rather than look at this four or five-fold ministry that he's laid out, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and so on, he's saying that the place where you're going to find the gift is in the church. Because the church is the agency the institution, if you will, that God gave the keys of His kingdom to. He gave them to His apostles. And so the church is to manage the affairs of God's household as stewards. And the church, folks, let me be blunt with you. And and again, you're here, so you're not one of these people. But the church has fallen on hard times in the 21st century. It started last century, and it's fallen on harder times in the 21st century. And let me, let me tell you, the statistics 
And the surveys that are going on is it's not getting better. Churches are shrinking. Denominations are shrinking. And the church is uh, uh, on hard times. The churches that are growing are mega churches, great big churches with lots of programs, lots of money, lots of stuff to offer. And it's because our society has become predominantly consumeristic. Yes? We want to go somewhere and we want somebody to serve us and give us. We don't necessarily want to go somewhere where we're going to be, you know, sapped of our own energy. And a lot of that is just the culture we live in where people are working more hours. Americans are putting 40 hours a week. I don't know if any of you, if you're working 40 hours a week, you, God bless you. You're a lucky one, in the famous words of John Calvin. 40 hours a week, I haven't seen 40 hours a week, I don't think, since I was 12 years old. So 40 hours, not possible. We're working, we're busy. And we've got kids. Some of you have big families, lots of children, lots to do. And church has fallen on hard times. You don't have time to come in and kind of create a program and help a church get off the ground and all that. Church plants are struggling. Small churches like ours struggle. Church has fallen on hard times. There's a phenomenon going on in our, in our century now. The nuns, have any of you read about the nuns and the duns? The nuns are people that basically don't want to get too involved in church. They don't want to make a commitment. They definitely don't want to join and have membership in a church. They have no affiliation with a denomination. They're just kind of spiritual. They're not necessarily uh, tied to any one group. And then there's this new one that's coming now that is really catching hold, the duns. There's the nuns and the duns. And these are people that have worked and served and come to church all their lives and they just finally get fed up and they say, I am done with church. And these statistics are being tracked and carefully researched and it's true. People are nuns or they're done. They're done with church. And who can blame them? You know, some of you that have been in your church all your life, I went to church all my life. Do you know what I heard every Sunday when I went to church? Anybody know? Try harder. Try harder. Do better. That's all I ever heard. It wasn't until I was an adult. In fact, it wasn't until Marty V and I were in Florida that I finally heard the Gospel and I thought, where have I been all my life? It's amazing. And can you blame people? They just get, you know what happens? They get exhausted. They get tired. Christianity is tired. It makes me tired to be told day in and day out, do this, do this, do this, and be better and try harder and do better. And maybe at the end of the day, maybe you'll do okay. Maybe when God puts you in that big scale, you know, you'll have more good than bad. And that's not good news, folks. That's tiring. So the church has fallen on hard times. And I want to encourage you, those of you that are, that, and again, all of you here have given your heart to the church and are serving the church well, but as you interact with people out there, don't judge them too quickly. Some of the people that you know that have left the church or just don't want to commit, I think if you'll start talking to them and asking them some questions, you're going to find out they're exhausted. Yes? They're just tired. And they're done with church because it's just too much trouble. But God has given a gift to the church, and that is this four, again, four or five-fold ministry. 
whereby you can actually, hopefully, and we pledge to you at Christ the King, we're going to preach the Gospel in our church. And so as you hear the Gospel, you are to become equipped so that you can then go out and serve. Listen to what Sinclair Ferguson said on this. He said, the ministry of God's Word is a gift to the church. Where are you going to hear God's Word? Technology is no substitute. I was telling Scott this this week at the gym. You cannot expect to put on an audio, and I love listening to sermons. I spend a lot of time listening to other people's sermons just to feed my own soul. But listen, folks, technology is no substitute for being live and present, as Patrick said, being in the community of God's people to worship. There's nothing like that. I have listened to Mendelssohn's Octet for Strings probably 20 or 30 times. But the one time that it was definitive, the one time that now I recall all the other recordings that I listen to now, I remember that one time was at El Paso Promusica sitting next to Dave Fickett. And they had an octet there playing, and it was so stunning, so amazing, that when they were through, everybody jumped up on their feet, clapping. And some of us, I don't know, Dave and I both had tears. We were a couple of big babies. It was beautiful and glorious. So now that, I'm, that I listen to it now by audio, just a, you know, a CD or what have you, that's the experience I recall. And that's what is so rich about corporate worship and what people who are nuns or duns, people that leave the church or don't experience it, they are not getting the full impact of this five, four, five-fold ministry. It's not possible. You have to be in community in order to absorb this down into the deepest part of your being. You need to come to Sunday school or the question and answer afterward and bounce questions. Listen to what other people are saying. Listen to what is happening. Let it sink down and permeate your bones so that when you do step outside into the world out there in your work, where, where like Randy Pope says, where you live, work, and play, all of those places that you're, that you're saturated with the Word of God and that it comes out of you, this the only place you can get that unique experience, folks, is in church. And I'm making a plea for it because I want lots of people in church, right? It's my job. But it's more than that. It's because I know what it does for me. And those of you that are committed to the church know what it does for you. So as you interact with people outside the church, people that have either left the church or they have no interest, Ask them questions. Find out what's going on and I'll bet you'll discover that they've been wounded somewhere, they've been hurt, or they're just tired. Their expectations have not been met. That all they've been told is do better, try harder. And that, folks, is not good news. But when you come to the church and you hear that Jesus Christ did not just better, He did best. And He did best for you and as you in your place. He lived a perfect life. He died a death none of us can imagine. And He did it for us 
so that the burden, the slavery of sin could be removed from us. Not so that we wouldn't have to serve Him, but so that we could. When you hear that message, your, your bones come alive. Your dead bones that dried up come alive and you're not tired anymore. You're energized to serve that kind of a Savior. It's not hard work. It's a joy. Because you know He's done it for us. Finally, the gifts are to give. I've already alluded that. Their gifts are to give. Look what he says in verse 12. He gave these gifts to equip the saints for the work of ministry in order that the body of Christ might be built up. The word, the word work here is dikaionia. It's the diaconal work. It's the work of serving one another. You don't have to be ordained a deacon in the church in order to do this. This is the work of ministry for every one of us. Our work is to serve one another so that the corporate body might be uh, built, might be built up. John Stott, really something. Listen to this, folks. This incontrovertible evidence in the New Testament envisages ministry, listen carefully, envisages a ministry not, not as the prerogative of a clerical elite. That would be me, the clerical elite. But as the privileged calling of all the people of God. You see, the church has gone through stages where all of the work of ministry is assigned to professional, clerical, elite. And as great as that is, it's just too much work. Right? So what God does is He calls all of us to this work equally. So it's not, there's not just a professional elite out there that does everything. But rather, He's calling and mobilizing the church to do this. The church is a hospital, a hospital and a gymnasium. A hospital and an, a gymnasium. It's not, listen, it's not a school. Not a school or merely educational purposes. It is transformational. It's a place where you go and, and you get healed of your brokenness or your wounds. You get mended. And a place where you also get equipped and built up and strengthened. So you come to the church, you should expect to find people that are messed up and broken. And at the same time, you should expect to find in church people that have got certain things working and they know and can come alongside and help you. And help you. And you won't find that anywhere else. You've got to find it in the church. So look to Christ. Embrace the church. And then be prepared to be equipped uh, to do this. Now, how do you know that you've received these gifts? Let me just say this very quickly. Uh, first, there's going to be in you a unity of faith and knowledge of Christ. In other words, there's, gonna, there's going to be an appetite and a growth that is in you that is perceptible. Now, it may not be perceptible to you all the time, but it will be perceptible. As you look back, you can see that you're drawn more and more to unity and knowledge of the Son of God. That's verse 13. 
There's a maturity. That's the second part of this. A maturity that starts to take on. In other words, you don't stamp your foot every time things don't go your way. You don't get angry at every little thing. You're starting to become, as we spoke about earlier and Gary prayed in his prayer, a spaciousness that takes a hold of you where there's room. In other words, people can get near you without getting burned alive. Okay? So there's unity, faith in the knowledge of the Son of God, and maturity, and a fullness of Christ. Fullness, a lot of times fullness is a euphemism for joy. In other words, you're full. You're excited about life. Yes, you can. there are times of lament and sorrow and pain, but there's an optimism, a forwardness to you that you're not just crushed all the time by every circumstance of life that doesn't go your way. Wouldn't it be wonderful to know that there's something inside of us that can withstand the slings and arrows that are constantly coming at us, especially in a complex society like we live in today. seems like things are just coming from every direction. And life is complicated. So he's saying that there will be unity, knowledge, maturity, and a fullness to your life. The church's goal is maturity and unity. That's what Paul is saying. Secondly, he wants us to grow up. Grow up. Churches are full of babies. Yes? I'm sure those of you that have been in church a long time may be one of them. You might be one of those babies. But there should be some growth in your life. Again, it'll be seen in spaciousness and tolerance and ability for people to get around you without getting burned alive. Paul says, don't be a child. No longer children. Don't be tossed by the waves, the winds of doctrine, human cunning, craftiness, deceitful schemes. I mean, we could talk about this all day. The church is full of that. And, it, and be thankful that you can be in a solid church where you're being cared for and shepherded so that those crafty schemers don't get a hold of you. But rather, he says, grow up. He says it twice in these last verses. Grow up, grow up. Grow up into Christ who's the head. How do you put all this together? How can you possibly take all of that, embracing the gifts, serving the church, and all of that? Well, I think the key, if you will, if you'll hear this, the key is in the little parentheses that, that Paul has here in verse 9 and 10. Look at what he said. He's quoting Psalm 68, and then he says this. In saying, he ascended. In other words, he's going to explain what he's talked about in the ascending and descending. In saying, he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended into the lower regions of the earth is the one who has also ascended far above all the heavens that He might fill all things. Now this is a mysterious verse. 
And people, the church has notoriously gotten it wrong in translating it. They have seen Christ coming down and going into the lower regions, into hell itself or into purgatory. The church taught for centuries that Jesus descended into the lower parts of the earth where it was Him descending into purgatory in order to pay some price in hell or in purgatory uh, for uh, our sins. But folks, where did Jesus pay for our sins in full? On the cross. He said, it is finished or it is paid in full or in Greek, tetelestai. It is finished. It is paid. It's done. There was no need for Him to descend into hell, into the lower part. So what does it mean? And this is the key to our Christian faith, folks. Right here in this little parenthesis of Paul. Let me finish with John Calvin. These words mean nothing more than the condition of this present life. Our humanity. Do you see it? Our humanity. This present life. Jesus becoming a human being. Taking on our flesh so that as our Savior, He could go to the cross and die for us and as us in our place Free us from the slavery of sin. These words mean nothing more than the condition of this present life. Listen, to torture them so as to make them mean purgatory or hell is exceedingly foolish. Paul says don't torture these words. He's just simply saying Jesus came down from heaven to these lower regions. He became a human being. He was born in a humble, as a shorter catechism says, a humble estate. Born as a man. Born under the law. Undertaking, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, and the death on the cross. A comparison is drawn, Calvin says, not between one part of the earth, listen, not between one part of the earth and another, but between the whole earth and the whole heaven. He's saying this, that the trajectory of God's salvation for you and I is from heaven to earth. The trajectory is from there to here. Why? So that He can take you from here to there. He descended, folks, to the cross to die for us so that we could be free to ascend with Him and serve the people around us, serve one another, be stewards of the gifts that He's given us. Jesus Christ gave that up so that sin would not have dominion over us, would not rule us. Will you do it? I pray that you'll do it. Embrace the gifts God has given you. Serve one another and the world around us. He descended so that we we could ascend with Him. Let's pray. Father, uh, we will never know in this life how much it cost You to see Your Son leave the glories of heaven. He that was rich became poor for our sake that we might become rich in Him. And I pray, Father, that You will do a work for us in our church 
and indeed throughout the churches in our city and this world that have fallen on hard times, I pray that You will raise up a generation of people who truly believe Your Gospel and believe it in a way that it transforms their lives, not merely acquiring information, but actually being changed and transformed down into our deepest parts of our body and our soul and our minds. Please, Father, we ask that You'll do this. In Christ's name, Amen.